0: We think the outcome of this is more art created, more things created, more things published. The only real losers are rent seekers in the middle. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guy, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare.
1: Welcome, welcome back, my pride of Liberty Lions, the ever-growing pride out there listening to this Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm excited to get to another great interview today. We're going to take a step away from all the political stuff, all the debate talk in this, the 185th episode of this program. That means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 185. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible free market, affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the founder and president of Library, spelled L-B-R-Y, which is a new way for people to publish and share content with each other. Jeremy Kaufman, are you ready to roar? Roar! I'm ready, Mark. All right. That's what we like. That's I like when I get an actual
0: roar. You know, I felt like that's what everyone wanted to happen.
1: <laughs> exactly. Now, Jeremy, before we get into your latest project here, LBRY, I want to learn a little bit more about yourself and how you first became involved in the liberty movement. So why don't you just tell us how did you first take interest in the ideas of individual liberty?
0: <laughs> well, there's actually, there's two questions there. It's interest in liberty and being involved in the movement. In terms of first getting interested in in the ideas of liberty, the answer there is probably a bit cliche in terms of, uh, the answer is Ayn Rand. Uh, There were probably a couple of introductions before that from the internet, and that was all the way back in high school. So, I was around the ages of 17 or 18, and going online and and finding answers that were different than the answers that I was being taught in school. And then, so I'd go online and I'd look up these things, and then I'd come into school, and I'd ask these questions, and I'd get answers, you know, that didn't really make sense. (laughs) And it started getting me down this path of thinking about other ways. And that's influenced a lot of my life.
1: Do you have any thoughts of like an example of the sort of questions you might have asked that you when you got an answer or an unsatisfactory answer, you started to think, wait a minute, what this isn't even they're not even answering my question.
0: (laughs) Certainly, there were two big ones would have been the ideas of democracy, you know, so whether or not that was an idea that actually created the best outcomes and why and how it was justified. And then another big one was the ideas of whether or not the laws that we had were what the constitution said. Now I don't really consider myself like a constitutionalist, but it seemed clear to me that they meant something and then coming in and saying well how does that, you know, justify this other meaning and the answers there never made sense to me.
1: And that stuff was just sort of brushed aside by teachers or authority figures or what have you.
0: Yeah, no. Another big one was, you know what, actually, I was pretty all over the place in terms of what I read. And this was a a more from the left, but Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, and getting a completely different look at like, you know, the government doing all of these really aggressive things against people, right? Like using the arms of the police to break up, you know, peaceful actions and things like this. That was very different than what I was being told in school.
1: It's really interesting you bring up that name, Howard Zinn, because Now, obviously, many of my guests, I've done 180-plus episodes of this program at this point. Many of my guests have mentioned Ayn Rand. It's a pretty common name. Ayn Rand, Ron Paul, probably the top two that I hear as early influences. But uh, I haven't heard Howard Zinn before, but he was actually an early influence on myself as well. Because back before I really became a quote-unquote liberty guy, I was just sort of generally interested in in alternative-type writing about history, politics, and that sort of thing. And and Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky were two guys that— first got me thinking, not necessarily philosophically, but they got me thinking, wait a minute, maybe some of the things I've been told didn't really occur in the manner that I was taught in school. And just like yourself, when you start to question things and, and you're told, oh, well, whatever, that stuff doesn't matter. You start to go, what do you mean it doesn't matter? I'm bringing up legitimate issues here. Like the U.S. government has committed many atrocities here that I wasn't told about in the school. What's the deal with that? And the I think it's the brushing off of that that even inspires us to dig even deeper. Because if somebody said, oh, yeah, well, that happened. And here's an explanation. Maybe I would like listen to it and think, OK, maybe there was some rationale behind these atrocities. <laughs> Probably not. But when you don't don't get any answer. And you're just told like, oh, well, don't worry about that little boy. That's when you go, well, what do you mean? Don't worry about it. This is a kind of a big deal here. And and that I think that type of thing really got me thinking on a deeper level when it came to politics and that sort of thing.
0: 100% agreed. And personally, I find myself a, more interested in people who are open minded and willing to consider things and willing to try to think things through, even if they reach different conclusions than myself, than you know, the people who are super dogmatic one way or another. You know, I believe in the ideas of liberty myself. I believe in that maxim of how voluntary can we make society. But I also think that, you know, I don't get this sort of angry, riled up sense that some people seem to get towards people just because they don't uh, agree with me on some things.
1: Right. And and if the response to someone disagreeing with you is anger, I mean, you're already losing the battle because no one wants to be yelled at. No one wants to feel that people are, I guess, verbally aggressing against them, not to confuse it with actual aggression. But, you know, people will be turned off by that sort of attitude. And that's kind of the attitude I try to take on this show. I have a lot of guests I disagree on fundamentally, but I don't attack them. I just have a conversation because that's that's the only way we're really going to get through to anybody is if we can have reasonable conversations and not just be spewing our dogma at each other.
0: 100%. And that's why one of my favorite ways to talk about the idea is just like, wouldn't it be nice if we just tried this? Like, it's rational. It's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to, to not maybe embrace that idea for yourself today. But if there are a bunch of other people who want to, why not let them and see how it works? And that's an idea that I find people are way more receptive to than trying to convince them from first principles or, or convince them that the, that the Fed is ruining the dollar or these kinds of topics that other people may try to use as the lever to introduce the ideas of liberty, you know?
1: Yeah. So let's dig a little deeper into the, the, I guess, the second half of that question is, how did you become more involved in, I guess, what you might call the modern liberty movement?
0: Oh, well, so again, in high school, I actually caught attention of the Free State Project back when people actually read Slashdot. So I I read Slashdot in high school. Uh, I was a nerd pretty early on in my life and spent a lot of time on my computer from the early days. And there was this article about the Free State Project on Slashdot and it caught my attention. And I kind of you know, I would see stories about them over the years. And when it came time to start this company library, the the other co-founder, his name is Jimmy Kislak, he was considering joining the project. And I was currently living in the city of Philadelphia didn't have too many strong ties to that city in terms of work at that point. And he was talking about moving. I said, you know what, Jimmy, if you move, I'm going to come up and I'm going to move too. And people talk about the Free State Project as being like a bunch of activists. And I don't, i, I just guess I've started a company that's inspired by the ideas of liberty, but I still don't really see myself as an activist. I don't, I don't wake up and have that as part of my identity. You know, I'm just trying to do my bit to do some work or something like this. I don't, I don't see myself as a warrior, a crusader, or these kinds of things.
1: So you don't wake up every morning and follow around, um, I guess, uh, traffic enforcement and put money in the meters and all that stuff?
0: (laughs) Hey, you know, they they do get some flack. I guess it's me, again, just trying to put a positive spin on it. You know, there is that Overton window. And so maybe they help there. And uh, maybe some of us will be (laughs) the reasonable free staters in, in contrary to some of their behavior. Probably not the best public image that that's gotten, but it also does get attention. So I don't know. It can be
1: looked at either way. And hey, if they were filling my meter, I'd certainly be thrilled about it. <laughs> I'll say that. But uh, so why don't we talk about library LBRY a little bit more here? What exactly inspired inspired this project? And what's the, what's the goal?
0: So two questions there again. Let's do goal first, because that's actually shorter than the inspiration. All right. The goal is we want to provide one way. We think of it as one box is the way that we'll explain it. That's going to let you search and find any piece of media or information that's ever been created or that anyone wants to publish to the network. Uh, So that could be movies, music, books, video games, any sort of piece of uh, static digital content that can be like packaged and delivered. And so library is actually a protocol. It's not uh, some sort of fixed system. You know, we're releasing some programs for it, but it's quite similar to BitTorrent or HTTP in terms of it's a way to do this kind of thing. So it's not just a program, it's an entire method. So it's all open source, it's all public. And we think it's going to be a far better way to access, discover, and pay for these things than any system we have today.
1: So Jeremy, how did you come up with this specific idea behind LBRI? You know, we understand what the goal is with it, that you want to be able to connect other people, but where did this come from? What exactly got you off the couch, I guess you might say? (laughs)
0: Well, I wasn't exactly on the couch before this, but there were several things that acted as inspiration to sort of fit all of these pieces together. The first one was the idea of Bitcoin itself. So Bitcoin, the real insight of Bitcoin as the way that I see it, I think it's the way that all of us see the library, is that it allows us to reach decentralized consensus. So trustless consensus, consensus without trusting any single party in Bitcoin is applied simply to balance it. So this idea of how many Bitcoins are there and who has them or what wallets are they in? That idea can be extended, though. You can reach consensus on all kinds of things. And several companies are doing this, reaching consensus on all kinds of ideas. What Library is doing, and as far as we know, we're the first company doing it in this way, is reaching consensus on metadata on information about content so metadata specifically related to content so not only is library a credit system it's a way of storing in a decentralized way in a trustless way information about content itself and there is no system that's doing this right now
1: so let's scale it back just a second here because you've used a couple terms that i know people in the liberty movement people that listen to the show will likely have heard bitcoin the blockchain but me I'm a pedestrian on this stuff. I got to be honest. I still, to this day, don't really get how the blockchain and all that stuff works. So why don't you just got to give me the sort of the layman's version of just what the blockchain is and what it means?
0: Totally. So there's how does it work? And then there's why does it matter, right? So I don't need to know how a car works, but I know why it's important. A car lets me get somewhere far faster than I'm going to get on my legs or on a bicycle. right? So I know why it's important to me. So... I'm going to answer that why first, and then I'll talk a little bit about the how. Because the real significance of this why is that it means that the network has no failure point. The network is very censorship resistant. Uh, I would hesitate to say censorship proof because, you know, there are ways that you could censor a library, right? You could shut down the internet. But the only ways to censor this protocol would be very, very high level and somewhat absurd things. And this was never possible until just a couple of years ago. And this is an amazing thing. And we're going to see the repercussions in a number of areas. And so how does it do this? And this is where it starts to get complicated. It starts to get technical. And you don't necessarily have to understand all of it. But basically... Because this is the
1: part where my brain usually starts to slowly uh, explode. So let's try to to, uh, figure this out in a way that won't make people's heads explode.
0: (laughs) So the idea is you have some really, really hard puzzles. And these puzzles are really difficult to solve. So... If you are trying to come up with an answer to the puzzle, and they're mathematical puzzles, right? So and you could literally think of them as like, is this number the answer to this puzzle, right? Uh, but they're really, really hard puzzles. And you're trying really, really big numbers. And it's a bunch of steps to do manipulations on this number to figure out, is this the solution to the puzzle? When you find a solution to the puzzle, though, and you tell other people about your solution, it's really easy to be like, yeah, that's a solution. So you could actually think about it. What's happening in reality isn't similar to a physical puzzle. You know, like when I say a physical puzzle, I mean a, a puzzle with puzzle pieces, but it's kind of like that in the sense that it's really hard to put a puzzle together. But if someone's put a puzzle together and claims that they've put a puzzle together, it's uh, pretty damn easy to, to see if they've done that, right? It's, oh, that's the puzzle, you know, and that's exactly what's happening. And so people are around the world with their computers racing to solve these puzzles. And when they solve these puzzles, that becomes the new consensus. Uh, It becomes the new state of all these balances. And that's when everything updates. And then everyone goes, oh, well, that guy solved the puzzle in this mathematical way proves that these are the new balances.
1: And everyone can then see that and verify it at that point.
0: Is that? Yeah, that's the idea. So I am following along. Okay. Totally. That's pretty much it. I mean, you can talk about it in more detail in terms of how it happens or what it does. But you, through these mathematical puzzles and people competing to solve them, you're able to, in a trustless way without needing to trust one party, reach a consensus about practically anything. It doesn't have to just be balances. It could be a consensus on any number of of states or properties.
1: So does someone need to really understand these concepts deeply to use library? Or is this set up in a way that someone like me, who clearly doesn't really get the ins and outs of it, can just just start using it pretty much right away? I mean, how much does it take for someone to get involved in this?
0: Well, so there's what we're aiming for, and then there's what's possible today. Our end goal here is something that is super user-friendly, and that is my background, actually. Uh, So before library and still currently, I founded a company, a software as a service company that's used by hundreds of thousands of users. And I have a big background in creating good user experiences, creating things that are understandable, that are for normal people, you know, and that's our goal. We want to give people a user experience that is stupid, simple, so easy, right? These Bitcoin and BitTorrent and these kinds of technologies they're very difficult for a lot of people to use. And we're trying to come up with a system that is, they honestly don't even need to know that much about it to be able to use it. So it's very much aimed in that way. Now what's possible today, we're currently in an alpha test and that alpha test is for more technical users. But if you are an OSX or a Linux user, you can alpha test our client and that's on our website at LBRY.io. And, If you do that, we are giving rewards out for early testers. And if you believe in the idea of library, that's really the biggest thing you could do, either to perform that test or to bug your friends and tell them about library and ask them to perform that test.
1: Jeremy, in a few minutes, we'll talk more about just who benefits from library and just who might be opposed to it. But first, I want to take a minute to tell my audience out there about our amazing sponsors at Health Excellence Select. Because as someone who purchases my own health insurance, I had become extremely frustrated at my escalating premiums and deductibles after the implementation of Obamacare. And this forced me to seek an alternative. And I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing, where groups of like-minded individuals get together to voluntarily cover each other's medical costs. Health Excellence Select will help you take charge of your health care without having to deal with all the cost and hassle of handling paperwork and spending hours on the phone with bureaucrats just trying to get paid. They will handle all the dirty work for you while also providing tons of valuable tools to help you stay healthy. Listeners of this program can get the VIP treatment and get signed up directly by my great representative, Jeff Cantor. Give him a call at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Until then, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health for more information. So who's really going to benefit from this program? I mean, do you think that this is something that will help? Artists and content creators distribute their work, you know, more easily or to a wider swath of people without having to rely on some major corporation to pick up and distribute their content.
0: So we think there are a ton of winners and a couple of losers. So the winners are the end consumers who will be able to get content more cheaply, have more content, have better access to it. We think the winners are the content creators themselves, the publishers, the artists. We think they will get more of the money for the work that they create than they did previously. We also think an aspect of this is you know, the winners are basically humanity as a whole, everyone. We think the outcome of this is more art created, more things created, more things published. The only real losers are rent seekers in the middle. People who use certain methods to extract more money out of both artists and consumers, and don't frankly deserve it, in our opinion. They're not contributing that much. They're getting in the way.
1: So let's hone in on the target a little more here. Who exactly are these rent seekers that you're referring to?
0: Large media companies. Companies who, in order to release your content, tend to want to own your content. Companies who don't value, you know, connections between artists and their fans. You know, companies that are trying to get as much money out of things as possible, right? Examples, just absurd stories like uh, Warner Brothers, who for years was charging people, you know, $100,000 or something like this to sing Happy Birthday, or companies that there's a story out recently that we were talking about on our blog uh, of Anne Frank's diary was like about to enter the public domain. And you know, this is something that's of interest to all of humanity. And They're trying to, some corporation is buying the rights and trying to assert that they have the copyright to it and prevent it from being shared by people for like another 30 years. And it's just ridiculous, you know, like, Is there any doubt? (laughs) I mean, I look, I don't (laughs) want to probably take like some bad territory to be like invoking the memory of Anne Frank, but like, I can't speak for her, but I doubt, I think she would have wanted as many people to read that story as possible. Like she doesn't care about some company extracting as many dollars out of that story as they possibly can. How does that help anybody?
1: Sure. In the case of Anne Frank, it's not like she sold the rights to her book or anything or signed some contract, um, you know, to make sure it was restricted for an X number of years. Just a certain company has those rights for whatever reason, and they get to control things, I guess, up to a certain point.
0: Yeah. And so a lot of what library is saying is like, a lot of what library is designed to do is let people and the communities follow their moral norms. So if the community really doesn't want some content on the network, they can actually get it off of there. Some of the other systems promise you like, yes, you can, we're going to give you this very reliable address. Library is actually this like full bidding system where if the community really doesn't want content on there, they can push it off. They can blacklist content, these kinds of things. So If the moral norm is that that people deserve to get paid for these things, they will get paid. And if the moral norm is like kind of screw you, then it it might be kind of difficult.
1: That's interesting because, uh, you know, one thing I'm thinking of here is like, okay, I mean, this might be a very extreme case, but let's say someone creates some child porn and tries to distribute child pornography over that network. I mean, and you're saying that there are ways for the network to sort of reject content like that, that they might find objectionable or immoral or what have you. So how does that actually work? I mean, can you actually block certain users that are are sending content that people find objectionable? I mean, I imagine there's somewhat of a line there between true censorship and actually just rejecting like criminal acts, you know, when people are, you know, taking advantage of children or that sort of thing.
0: Right. So, when you're running a library client as what we call a host, so a host is someone who contributes their disk space and bandwidth to the network, and it's part of what makes the network possible. So when you're running as a host, your client is generally, it's pretty dumb. It basically sees these blind bids flying through the network for chunks of information, and it doesn't know what's in those chunks of information. They're encrypted chunks of information. So it just sees these bids happening for these encrypted chunks of information, and so it doesn't know what what information it's getting. If it chooses to host that, that's the default standard setup of library, which is this very, very naive clients don't know what they're doing. But then on top of that, there is a possibility for a blacklist system. So a hash is a unique signature for anything, for a file, right? So it's basically a much shorter thing. So rather than, you know, a whole movie is uh, some two gigabyte file, you could have a hash for that movie that is you know, maybe 50 characters or 100 characters. And it's a unique signature. You know, only that two gigabyte file would be able to generate that hash. And so hashes are are what the client is seeing go through the network. And actually, in the case of library, these hashes are never the whole file, but they're chunks of the file. So it sees these hashes, it chooses to pick them up. It can then subscribe to a sort of blacklist system. So this list of hashes that are bad hashes, right? I don't want to host these hashes. So the idea there would be that, any party could generate this kind of list, right? So, if the community feels that this type of content is really bad, this could be content that's published, you know, by the people who aren't the rights holders. It could be child pornography. It could be whatever. Then the clients will have the ability to subscribe to those lists. Our clients will almost certainly, well not almost certainly, certainly will be subscribing to these lists. So the clients that we officially release will be subscribing to these lists. We've been working with lawyers from day one on library. We have very clear legal obligations to censor our search results or search results in any clients that we provide. So that's step one of the filtering is that there's this blacklist system. The other method that keeps content off the network is this will probably be its own conversation, Mark, is how bidding in library works, so how the name reservation system works itself. So when I say the word name, that's like a URL. So the example that we use most frequently with library is the movie It's a Wonderful Life. That would be located most likely at the name Wonderful Life. If you wanted to get directly to that piece of content, once you have the library software installed on your computer, you would actually just go into your browser and type LBRY colon slash slash Wonderful Life. And that movie would start streaming uh, within a matter of seconds. And that name, though, is not owned by anyone. It is only reserved. So the person who has committed the most credits, has tied up the most credits so that they can't be spent, controls where that name resolves to. And if someone else comes along and wants to commit more credits to control that name, after a certain period of time that gives either the original owner or the community at large to step up and counter that bid, the name will transition. So this means that you can also sort of hunt down people who have names. It means that if someone is using a name illegally, the proper holder can immediately take that name over and stop that person from profiting and make the profit themselves. And this design, which a lot of people do, I'll be honest, they react to it with skepticism, but it's inspired by a Nobel Prize winning theorem called the Coase theorem. And we believe that it dictates that over time, the proper outcome or the most efficient outcome and the outcome in the real world will be that the rights holders control almost all of the names in library.
1: So you think, because a lot of people might listen to, you know, this concept of library and see it as sort of, I I guess, a way for people to get around compensating the people that should be Compensated, I guess, for certain works, but you're kind of saying that over time this will actually help people with that. Is that and maybe that, my layman's interpretation is wrong here? But
0: no, that is absolutely what we want to happen, Mark. If the outcome of library is that rights holders when I say the right, I'm sorry, I, I really shouldn't say rights holders. I mean the publishers, the creators, the people who actually make the stuff. If they don't end up making more money in this system, we have failed, and it was absolutely not what we intended. That is what we think will happen.
1: Interesting, because I, I do think that is one of the major objections you might get to a lot of people, even in the liberty movement, because it, IP intellectual property, I think it's a not quite a black and white issue. I think it is a, a more difficult one, whereas, you know, if you're a person even remotely in the libertarian or individual right side of things, say the war on drugs, very black and white. It's very clear. End it tomorrow. But I think intellectual property is a little more difficult simply because many people see artists, musicians, writers, and they say, well, I do feel, even if I might not like our system, that they should be compensated in some way. And on the surface, they might see library as a way to screw content creators of out of, you know, people just might be copying their work and distributing it. But you're saying that the way you're setting it up is really the opposite effect that content creators will actually be the ones to benefit.
0: Well, Mark, so I think the answer there is, when we talk about these issues, we need to separate between is there sort of a private property justification for these things, or is there a moral norm that we're concerned with? And we can hold the moral norm that artists deserve to get paid and enforce that moral norm. And when our friend, you know, doesn't choose to donate when they download the Louis C.K. special that says, "Hey, can you just chip me a couple of bucks?" Say, "Hey, you cheap chick, give him his money because he deserves it." That doesn't necessarily mean that if that friend chooses not to give the money, that you know Louis C.K. Has, you know has the right to come and. Uh, and hunt down your jerk friend. So I think it is important that we enforce that moral norm and say, "Hey, yeah, you, if you don't pay for this stuff, it's not going to get made. You have to chip in. You have to do your part." But I don't think it's necessarily okay that that we have these, you know, very arbitrary fixed rules that then justify people to go. And interfere with someone else, you know?
1: I mean, in some ways, it sounds like this is sort of a a solution to what a lot of people call for of, you know, saying, yeah, we disagree with these arbitrary laws. We think that the uh, intellectual property is unjust, especially in the way it's enforced through law, through government policies. But, you know, we feel that artists should be compensated and... We want to promote private systems to doing so and yet it seems very hard for people to come up with actual private systems that could do so. And and this is kind of what you're presenting as as that private system.
0: One hundred percent. That's the idea. We I mean and, and that's the way we tried to align all the incentives. That's sort the way we have tried to align all the parties. The way that I think about sort of entrepreneurship and creating companies is Government creates these inefficiencies and then the job of the entrepreneur is to design a system that that routes around those inefficiencies and restores them, you know, to make it as efficient as possible. And I think this is, this is our attempt to do that.
1: So do you have any legal concerns with this business idea? Because, I mean, I know you've brought on lawyers. I know you've got Stefan Kinsella, who, by the way, was the first guest ever on this podcast Woo! to help you guys out with this. And I know the Justice Department targeted Kim.com, who, you know, had Mega Upload, which is basically just a hosting service. And, you know, he's been a, a constant target of the Justice Department. So I, I have to imagine you are you're have that kind of stuff in mind when you're approaching
0: this. 100%. That's why we've been working with a lawyer from day one. We're taking some proactive steps in terms of doing what we can to protect ourselves. But the answer is, it's a given, right? Like Library is such a new idea. It's such a new technology. The answer in so many of our conversations, and and we've had a number of conversations and consultations about this, is that You can't know. You can't know. And so if it's not that clear, it's a given that you're you're gonna get sued. So, you know, we think what precedents there are are on our side in terms of there not being issues with library. Like now there are some people that could very clearly be liable if they use library in certain ways. So if you are paying for content that you don't have the rights to access from the person who's publishing it, both the person receiving those funds and the person paying those funds are very clearly breaking the law. But illegal things happen. With guns that are made by gun manufacturers, and illegal things happen over HTTP, which is made by protocol manufacturers. Um, so, so, so this
1: wouldn't really shield people necessarily who you know might be violating the law, but you're just setting up a system where people can communicate, yes, and share these files.
0: Yeah, I mean, we do think it offers better privacy protections than BitTorrent, uh, so it's it is designed to sort of gracefully extend BitTorrent and build a better BitTorrent. But yeah, we're not promising. If you want to use library to do illegal things, we're not recommending that, you know, you come here and do that.
1: All right. Well, Jeremy, it certainly is an interesting take because I got to be honest, when I first heard about this, the first thing I'm thinking is, you know, this is just um, a way for people to sort of exchange files illegally and sort of get around the current system. And it is in, in many ways a way to get around the current system. But the more I speak to you, the more it really sounds like what so many people ask for it. When we have this intellectual property debate within libertarian circles, they say, man, if only we could come up with private systems of sort of enforcing this better instead of all these arbitrary laws, which really don't seem like they're based on property rights or based on true justice of any kind. So I I really do think it is an interesting alternative you guys are presenting here.
0: Well, thank you very much. That's quite the compliment, Mark. And if, if for any of your listeners who feel the same way, you know, even if you're not at the level where you can download and test our software, if you want to follow along, we're With this, as we do this, we're telling stories all the time, posting updates, this kind of thing. You can give us a like, a follow on Twitter. Uh, We're also on Reddit. And you can find all of this off of our website at lbry.io.
1: Jeremy Kaufman, thanks so much for joining me today. And keep on roaring, man.
0: Roar! Thanks, Mike.
1: Okie dokie, gang. I hope you enjoyed my little conversation there with Mr. Jeremy Kaufman of Library. And, you know, I got to admit it. At first, I kind of thought... This library thing was going to be just another method by which people would try to subvert the possibly legitimate, depending on your view of IP, copyright claims to many works out there. And But the more I got to hear Jeremy's vision of how this should work, uh, it actually sounds to me like a potentially great free market solution for those that do hold a belief in intellectual property to some extent, but might have a lot of the same issues that I have about how that concept is applied, how governments the world over at times quite vehemently prosecute people for copyright violations Where under this system, it seems like people might even have a method for ensuring that the proper individuals, as in the actual content creators, receive credit and therefore profit off of their work without having to sell it to some huge corporate middleman like Netflix or Amazon or or what have you. They can do it for themselves. All they need is a computer and a set up, you know, an account and set up. A bunch of blockchain stuff that I will fully admit that I don't get, but it does sound interesting to me. And I'm not endorsing it, but I am intrigued by it. And if you're intrigued by the conversations on this show, much like the one you heard today, there are many ways you can help. First, the absolute number one thing you can do to help this program is is to go subscribe on iTunes, even if you don't listen there. That is the number one podcasting platform, the number one place people are going to find this show. And the more subscribers we have, the better chance people are going to see it based on the way iTunes does these things. Another thing you can do to help out while you're over there is to leave us a five star rating. Of course, if you feel this program is worthy of that and a great review, hopefully a great review. I can't tell you what to write about this. But if you've made it this far, if you've made it to the close of the show, I got to thank you, at least somewhat enjoying what's going on here. So please leave us a great review while you're there as well. And just remember, guys, you are the marketing team. You are the marketing budget. If you enjoy this program, share it on your social media, share it with your friends and your family. You can find us on our social media on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty over on the Twitter at Lions of Liberty. And if you want to join the conversation with us a little more closely, a little more personally, you can come to our private Facebook group. That's called the Lions of Liberty Forum. If you just type that in your little search bar on Facebook, you should find it. Also, of course, link to it in the show notes for this program. Just come on over Request to join, and as long as you look like a real person and not some sort of spam bot, I will let you right on in to join the conversation with us. Guys, next week is a very special week because we are featuring the return of a man who's been somewhat on the shelf for the last few weeks physically, not mentally. His mind is as sharp as ever, but he's going to be back for what is maybe somewhat sadly a moratorium on the campaign of one Rand Paul. That's right. I'll be welcoming in Brian McWilliams for the final edition of Rand Paul Uses and Minuses. We will take a look back on the good and the bad of the Rand Paul campaign. Of course, in between now and then, You've got another edition of Felony Friday this coming Friday with John Odermatt. Until then, folks, live long and live free.